Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. So as I mentioned before, it is Pentecost Sunday, and that is supposed to be a day where we're supposed to be excited. Woo! Woo! Anyone ever gone to their own birthday and like you just like felt like, oh, do I have to have another birthday? Okay. <laughs> well, it shouldn't be that way with the church. It is our birthday. <laughs> and I think this story is really fitting um, in light of being Pentecost Sunday. Um, in that this is a story where we actually see explicitly the articulation of what Jesus is actually doing in his life. And if you remember, we a couple of weeks back, we actually said that uh, Mark chapter 1 verse 15, when Jesus is making this announcement, the kingdom of God is near, or in other words, the kingdom of God is within grasp, therefore repent, or in other words, therefore rethink your entire life in light of the kingdom of God being like so close Mark doesn't go on to actually write an article or an essay as to what the kingdom of God is. Instead, what he says is, now look at the life of Jesus and you will see and you will learn what it actually looks like to see the kingdom of God breaking in and breaking forth in this world. And in this story, Jesus actually articulates exactly what he's doing, what he's about. So from verse 13, we read, Then Jesus went out to the lake shore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home um, as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other distributable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. But when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. This is the second conflict in a succession of five conflicts that Mark writes down for us between Mark chapter 2, verse 1 and chapter 3, verse 6. If you remember last week, I said um, by Mark 3, verse 6, there was actually a plan and a plot between the Pharisees and the Herodians. By the way, they didn't like each other. So there was something that actually united them, even though they hated each other's guts, and it was Jesus. And they actually put a plan in play to kill Jesus. So these controversies are escalating, they're leaning up. And what we mentioned last week is that if we are going to follow Jesus, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, one thing that is going to happen is that Jesus will actually lead us into areas, into arenas of confrontation and arenas of conflict. And that's really uncomfortable for a lot of people. It's uncomfortable for me. I don't like conflict. Do you guys like conflict? Try being a senior pastor. There is so much conflict being a senior pastor. Um, there is so much. Uh, it's just not natural for us. But at the same time as we find it really uncomfortable, it's important for us to realize that conflict, there is actually really great gain in conflict. Because when you actually enter conflict and not like sort of step uh, aside from it, when you actually enter into conflict, you actually start to discover and you actually drill down as to what the real issues are that are going on here, don't you? Have you ever been in a place and you could just feel like, man, something's not right here. There, there, there's this like, oh, like, oh, like oh, everyone is married. You just walk into a house like, whoa, something's up. What's going on? You don't know what it is. 
And you can make this, okay, well, ooh, it, doesn't, it feels really uncomfortable here. I'm going to go shopping. Or say, okay, what's going on, hon? Like, when you actually step into that, you actually start to discover what the real issues are. And at the same time, when you step into conflict and confrontation, you actually discover what are these values that are actually being um, trod upon in this moment. Because that's really what the issue is. If we hold fundamental values and we know someone's actually trespassing, someone's trying to deteriorate those values, that really irks us. And we know these are actually a non-negotiable. Why is someone trying to attack this? But it's only when you step into confrontation and into conflict and actually deal with that in a good posture, by the way, um, not like blowing up or being silly, you actually um, get great clarity and you also get great alignment. And we all know that. Um, conflict happens in marriages, right? Anyone married? You get conflict? Yeah. Two hands? Three hands? You'd be a freak if you had three hands. No. <laughs> it happens. You know why? Do you know why there's so much confrontation and conflict in marriage? Marriage is quite possible. I think marriage is the, the greatest mechanism that God has given us in order to be sanctified. That's why. It is a sanctification sacrament, marriage. Because marriage is supposed to be a representation of the Trinity, okay? It is. Here on earth, man and woman come together in a good Christian way. We all fail, don't worry. But at its best, it's supposed to show the world God, right? That takes hard work. And for that reason, when God brings two people together, he is shaping and he's molding us and the sparks and all that. But it is a process of us becoming more like Christ. It is a mechanism of sanctification. That's why that stuff happens. It's really, that's actually really important to know. Um, is that news to anyone? The sparks are flying. Whoa! God's at work. <laughs> Parenting brings conflict, doesn't it? Even in the little, this still brings conflict. Why don't they? We know we're babies. I don't know. Why don't they listen? Just don't listen. Churches have conflict. Did you know that? Churches have conflict. Followers of Jesus have conflict. <laughs> the workplace. I think the Australian way is to run away, to avoid conflict. You know, you, you're walking on eggshells wherever you go. Just avoid conflict at all costs. Yet Jesus, he actually demonstrates and he shows that if you're going to follow Jesus, he is going to lead you straight into arenas of conflict and confrontation. And when he does that, he is doing it in such a way that he has such a posture that he's bringing clarity and bringing alignment as to what the kingdom of God looks like breaking in and breaking forth in this world. So it's really important for us to actually learn and to see what he is doing. And in this story, there is obvious disapproval. There's obvious conflict. And it can be summed up in one question that the Pharisees actually pose. Why does he eat with such scum? Such scum. Have you ever been called scum before? You ever been called, I've been called worse than scum. <laughs> you Why does he eat with such scum? This is an important question. I reckon if I was like standing around looking at Jesus that day, I'd probably be asking the same kind of question. And in the defense of the Pharisees, those who have been brought up, who have been taught the law, understand the ways of God, and, and from, the, from the time they were born, they were brought up in this culture of, of knowing Torah and all that. And they, they, they would have been looking at Jesus, and immediately in their mind, they would have actually had Psalm 1, verse 1, come to their mind. They would have actually had that. You know? And they wouldn't have to go look it up. It would be memorized. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. So you've got to understand, the Pharisees, they would have been seeing this, 
And they know their scriptures. They know their scriptures better than us. So immediately they've been thinking, wait a minute. What's going on? Like, what is Jesus doing? Because if, if Jesus, if he's, a, if he's a good rabbi, if he's a good teacher, he would surely know that what he is doing right now, this is really odd. In fact, what he's doing now is really wrong. Um, he shouldn't be doing this at all. But again, Mark is actually trying to show us, look at Jesus, watch Jesus, go deeper into the life of Jesus, and you're going to see what this life is of following Jesus and actually being part of the kingdom is all about. And if you remember, this story comes immediately after the very first conflict, and that first conflict was all about Jesus' identity. Out of his own lips, you know, he's there in a house, in his home. Uh, hometown in his house, possibly his own house, we don't know. The roof gets dug out, paralytic man gets dropped down at his feet. He says, your sins are forgiven. People get really ticked off for good reason, for good reason. Only God can forgive sins, right? But out of his own mouth, out of his own mouth, he says in verse 10, I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins, and God is not on earth. God is in heaven And yet he says, I'm going to show you that the Son of Man has authority, not just to forgive sins, but the the Son of Man has authority on earth. So he's really drilling up. And the story is that your sins are forgiven, you're healed, get up. And he went, and in that moment, Jesus validates his authority to forgive sins, which means he's telling us something about who he is, that he is Yahweh, right? If you ever had someone kind of say, Well, Jesus never says he's God. Well, Mark 1, verse 1, we've talked about John Mark is making a declaration about Jesus is Yahweh. And now, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus, out of his own lips, is making a declaration, I am Yahweh. There's your defense. So he does that. And this story comes straight after. So you have to understand the succession. First story, first conflict. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Now, in the second story, Jesus is now showing us the type of people who will receive this kind of forgiveness and on what terms. Does that make sense? Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Now, these are the type of people who are going to receive. And this is what stirs so much anger. Um, as I was um, just preparing this week, I came across... Um, a quote and a couple of articles um, from a billionaire, philanthropist, and the founder of the cable news, um, CNN. Um, His name is Ted Turner. And um, he um, is famously or infamously remembered for saying um, this quote. He says, Christianity is for losers. Any losers here today? That's right, a bunch of losers. Um, Some of you may even remember when it came out. Um, I was actually too young. Um, to remember, and when I was that age, I didn't care. I was just playing cricket and basketball. Um, but at the same time that he actually um, spoke this out, and it was very controversial. You know, right now, if, if celebrities or billionaires say stuff about Christianity, no one really cares. You know, it's like, oh, everyone's saying that. But back then, this was actually a really big deal. So when this actually came out, there was a New Testament scholar who actually wrote to the editor who was publishing this interview. And um, the New Testament scholar actually wrote in and said, Mr. Turner may actually be closer to a correct understanding of Christianity than what most people are. 
He actually wrote, he said, from the beginning, Christianity has been a religion for the losers, for the marginalized, for the oppressed, for the left out. Don't you feel great today? You know, so for the losers. And if you look at the Gospels, Jesus had this propensity for attracting a certain type of people, didn't he? He had this propensity for eating with certain types of people. And he also had a propensity for radically changing and transforming the lives of a certain type of people. And you might ask the question, people back in the day, would they have considered these people losers? And the answer is absolutely. In fact, loser would have been a very polite way of what they were thinking and what they thought of such people. And it's important for us to understand that Levi in the story, he is one of those people. He is one of these people. He's a tax collector. Tax collector. What I find interesting is that in this moment, it's not like Levi has this deep reckoning in his heart and he's like, in his, like thinking, so, you know what? I need the Lord right now. He has nothing of that in his mind. He is not expecting to meet Jesus. Neither is he preparing his heart to meet Jesus. But out of the blue, out of nowhere, on some given day, Jesus appears in his life. He appears in his life. Tax collectors, they were seen as greedy, dishonest, traitors, and um, extortioners. Tax collectors. Do you like tax collectors? Depends if they're going to give us a refund or take one away, right? <laughs> Back in this day, there was no giving refunds. No, 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 no. These guys, they collected taxes from their Jewish brothers on behalf of the hated Roman Empire. And what they would do is that they would overcollect, and all of the surplus they would keep for themselves. So that's really important for us to understand. So when Jesus actually goes and has dinner at the house of Levi, he's actually having dinner with not just Levi, but other tax collectors and other associates of Levi. And if you know that you're like, your job is to actually collect money from people, but in order to make a profit, you need to take more than what you should, what happens if these people can't pay up? Well, you need to make sure you hire some muscle to go and knock on their door, break their knees, and actually get the money somehow, isn't it? And then you've got other people in your association, like you'll have prostitutes and all that. This is pretty much the underworld of Capernaum, this guy, all right? We can read like, oh, Levi, the tax collector. Levi's like Matthew, and Matthew's a disciple. And wait a minute, this guy started in the underground of Capernaum. This is like crazy, crazy stuff. And it's really, this appears to be at odds of what rabbis and people of God are supposed to do. I mean, Psalm 1 does not say, blessed is the one who feasts with prostitutes and thugs, does it? No, it doesn't say that. And if anything, it says you need to stay away from them. You shouldn't stand with them. You shouldn't walk with them. You shouldn't sit with them. And Jesus is sitting, you know? In Psalm 1, it goes from, there's a progression, you know? You're walking, you're standing, you're sitting. Well, he's sitting. He's at the end of it. But once again, Jesus, he's doing everything on his own terms. Everything on his own terms. Jesus already um, chosen some disciples. And for some reason, he addresses Levi, son of Alphaeus. Alphaeus is a Jewish name. So this is a Jewish boy who is sitting at the tax collector's booth. This Levi, he's a betrayer. Cares nothing relationships. He's hated. He works with criminals. His friends are criminals. He's part of the mafia of Capernaum. He's a very wealthy person. While everyone else is getting poor, he's getting richer. In fact, because he's getting richer, other people are getting poorer. 
And Jesus is approaching this guy. I mean, it's one thing to approach fishermen. But Jesus, he goes to a tax collector. Why? Because he's doing everything on his own terms. Another thing, back in that tradition, even now, rabbis do not go and select disciples. Disciples go and approach rabbis. And there is a vigorous kind of initiation or interview process in order to do it. But rabbis do not go and approach potential disciples. But Jesus does. Again, he's doing it on his own terms. And then we read when Jesus speaks. Verse 14. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Follow me. I'm going to spend a bit of time on that. Follow me. Have you noticed everyone wants to be a leader these days? No one wants to be a follower. It's almost like following is like so um, unmentionable. No one ever wants to be a follower. Everyone wants to be. Even in churches, it's all about church leadership, church leadership, 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 leadership. Um, unfortunately, you're never going to be a leader if you don't know how to follow. Follow me. How does that word follow, how does that sit with you today? Follow me. In a world that's obsessed with leadership, follow me. I mean, if Jesus came and as he does every single day, right now, I tell you, by the end of today, you know, in the next 20, 25 minutes, he is going to be speaking directly to your heart about some things and he's going to be saying, follow me. How are you and I going to respond when he says, follow me? You know, I guarantee you, you know, it's scary because I'm preaching this. I know by the end of this sermon, God's going to be looking at my heart and say, okay, Dave, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to follow me? And I'm going to be honest. That stuff is a little bit unsettling. I'd like to say, you know what? I'm a man of God. I'm pastor of the house. I'm a spiritual leader. When Jesus says, follow me, I'll just drop everything like, and I'll just go. But I'm human and so are you. How do you sit with that? Follow me. How are you going to respond? It's like, where are we going? <laughs> I can't even say to my kids, can't Caleb going? Like, where are we going? I don't want to go. <laughs> Seriously. Like, they're so young. Okay. <laughs> okay, let's go. I don't want to go. Why? I'm watching Bluey. <laughs> it's true. That cartoon. <laughs> Where are you going? Why? You know, I'm quite happy to be here. The culture that we are in does not bode well with follow me. Because follow me, that is a very closed, very direct instruction. Follow me. Where are you going? I didn't give you any additional information. I just said follow. How are we going to deal with that? See, when we're looking at this, this is the terms. You know how I said Jesus has authority to forgive sins? Now he's going to talk about the type of people who are going to receive this thing, forgive, um, receive forgiveness. But he's also telling us the terms upon which we get forgiveness. The terms, follow me, follow me, follow me. Someone has said that culture is like water that a fish swims in. You don't really um, know it's there until you're taken out of the water. You know, it's like that. Because we live in this culture, we breathe this culture, we're educated in this culture, and because of that, we are unaware of the culture in which we live. Until Jesus comes, and he takes your life, and he takes my life, and all of a sudden, we're out of the water. And then we know. And then we know. Australian culture, we're a little bit behind 
um, a lot of the Western world when it comes to Australian culture, especially if we're going to put a definition of like secular culture. And um, uh, so we're a little bit behind, especially being in Perth, which means we've got opportunity to learn. But our culture is actually very used to deconstructing and then reconstructing everything. That is the way we are taught and educated to think um, at the moment. And there is quite good merit in a lot of ways in that, um, if you do it well, if you do it right. But one thing that has happened is that this kind of culture and this whole idea of deconstructing and reconstructing, it's actually fostered and it's nurtured a mindset of self-autonomy um, in our minds. I reckon, like some of us here, and you're a bit older than what I am, you, 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 you'd be, if you were to like sort of contrast today and the way that we talk about our politicians and school teachers and leaders and policemen, and if you put that back 50 years ago, there is a complete difference, isn't there? In the way that we respect and the way that we talk, it's because now we've got this nurtured thing of self-autonomy and we actually challenge every other authority. Now it's not working. That's actually, we actually see it outplayed everywhere. And it's actually outplayed in church as well. It's actually crept into the Christian life. And what's happened is that we, 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 we are taught to deconstruct and reconstruct. And it's caused us as Christians in the Western world, and again, we're a little bit behind in Perth, we have this DIY faith, do it yourself. It's almost like we walk into Bunnings and we take a little bit of this and we take a little bit of that and take a little bit of that. But as we open up Scripture, say, I'll take this, I'll take this, I'll take this, especially those that are running in the slipstream of what we want to see in the world today. All of it is kingdom-based and all that. So we'll take injustice and we'll take tolerance and we'll take equality and, and all that and we'll take looking after the fringe and we'll say, yeah, we'll wrap that up and we'll sign and say, that's a social gospel. And we reduce the gospel because the gospel encompasses everything, not just social, everything. So we do that, but we say, oh no, I'm going to leave this stuff behind. And in particular, we say we're going to leave our, sex, our sexual ethic behind. You know, the parameters by which God has actually said it belongs. And, and the barriers and the restrictions and all that. We're going to leave that over there, but we're going to take all of this. And the only problem when you have a DIY faith and you go into your, your Bible budding story and say, I'm going to take this, I'm going to take this, I'm going to take this. I'm not going to take that. I'm not going to take that. I'm not going to take that. The only problem is Jesus will have none of it. He'll have none of it. He will have none of it. So you could be like running around following Jesus and it might suddenly occur to you, the Holy Spirit give you a tap on the shoulder and you may think you are genuinely following Jesus and the Holy Spirit says, dude, you're going the wrong way. You are going the wrong way because this passage of Scripture and this gospel is showing us that Jesus is doing absolutely everything on his own terms and he's not apologizing for it. How about the demons? The demons know exactly who he is. Some of the demons actually start saying, you are, and Jesus says, shut your mouth. If anyone is going to articulate who I am, it is me, not you, on his own terms. And that's what he does in the story we went through last week. Jesus goes and heals in the synagogue. You know how, um, how um, outrageous that is? In the synagogue, they are, gathered around the authority of Torah. Torah. Moses gave us Torah. This is it. The authority of Torah. Jesus, with a greater authority, steps into the synagogue, and there's this guy there who's been chained up, been tormented, been absolutely just 
possessed by this evil spirit for possibly decades and decades and decades, just by the mere presence of a higher authority stepping into the synagogue, he is released and he is set free. And Jesus does not apologize for it. Do you think everyone was happy about that? They weren't happy about that. How would you feel if you're over there and you say, yeah, we got everything right and we got this authority and we got all this, and all of a sudden this strange guy walks in and bang, stuff happens. They're not happy about that at all. He heals on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. Does Jesus care about healing on the Sabbath? Doesn't care. Doesn't apologize. We're going to read some stories in the future, some more conflicts, where he even goes even deeper. Does not apologize. Everything is happening on his terms. He approaches disciples. Rabbis don't do that. Again, it's on his terms. He even determines when he's going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to do it on my terms. It's going to happen during Passover on my terms. There's even this picture where he is before Pilate and, and he's been handed over and there's this conversation, this interaction between the Pilate who represents Rome and Jesus. There are two kingdoms facing off. And even in that moment, and he's about to go to this cross, but it's undeniable. Everything at this moment is on Jesus' terms, not on Rome's terms. He's doing everything on his terms. And there's a very simple reason why Everything is happening on Jesus' terms. It's because Jesus is the rightful king of Israel and the rightful king of the world and is God himself. So that's why if we have a mentality and a mindset, I'm just going to have a DIY faith, this, 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 and we might turn to Jesus, look, how awesome is this? And Jesus said, yeah, um, we're not going to have that because he really does not care. It's on his terms. And to be honest, I actually like that about Jesus. I love the fact that he's so confident. I love the fact that he just has such a swag, that he rock into situations and circumstances and conflicts and controversies, and he'll just say, yeah, you see all this? This is actually going to happen on my terms, not your terms. And I feel really comfortable, and I feel really excited about following that kind of God and following that kind of Messiah, knowing that he's so confident in times where I'm so not confident. Anyway. Follow me. So he sees Levi. He doesn't sell him anything. This is a really important one for the church. He doesn't sell him anything. Come to me and you can live your best life now. You know? Um, what was that Hill song last, last year? You were talking about that song. You remember that song? Everything's going to be all right, that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You say, oh, Dave, we need to do this song. He said, there's only one problem with that. Jesus doesn't promise that everything's going to be all right. That's the problem. So if you actually come and you're singing things which aren't lining up with Scripture, you're kind of setting up the entire congregation. You know what I'm saying? But we will add and we will choose and we will pick. But, but, but what is Jesus? He doesn't, like say every, he doesn't even tell you. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? Like, come to Jesus, everything's going to be all right. He doesn't do that. He just says, follow me. Follow. What are you going to do when everything is falling apart? Well, keep following me. Keep on following me. He doesn't give him a catch cry, a media grab. There's no hashtags. There's no branding. There's no branding. There's no branding. I'm sitting by a text. Like, there's no social media, obviously. But as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphie, sitting by text collectors with, follow me and be my disciple. Guess what? So Levi got up and followed him. What do we do when Jesus speaks? Follow me. Do we get up and go? Something really, really important, something very special, something that is so needed happens when we actually follow Jesus. I found this in my own life, and it is what the world is craving. 
when we follow Jesus, we are actually engrafted into meaning. We are engrafted into the kingdom of God. We were invited to leave this world and enter a kingdom. We are engrafted into meaning. And that is so important because we are meaning people. We are story people. We are story people. Even atheists, I was like listening to an interview um, last, the Monday before, and uh, a guy who doesn't believe in faith, Christianity and all that, and, and he was saying the difference between humans and every other creation is that humans somehow manage to gather around stories. I thought that's very interesting for an atheist to say. And he even gave the example of like um, um, a piece of plastic. He says, we're so bought into stories that I can hold up this piece of plastic, which is actually worth nothing, and I can go and exchange it for like a TV or for bread. And like, you know what I'm saying? So we've got, there's something about us that even those who do not have any faith, they actually recognize that humanity has this ability. There's something about us that we need to be part of a story because meaning is so important to us. There is a reason, there is a purpose as to why we are here, what we experience, and what we are going through. And it's only the Christian faith that actually adequately, with whole integrity and honesty, actually answers the fundamental questions that the world is asking if they are courageous enough to ask them. It's only Christianity. No other worldview actually has the guts, has the horsepower, or has anything near to the answers to what the world should be answering, or if they're honest enough to answer. I mean, why in the world is both the world both beautiful and terrible? Have you noticed that? There is such beauty in the world, but there is also such hurt, isn't it? Why is that? That's crazy, you know? Why is it that for every single human inside, there seems to be this quest for Eden? What is Eden? It's a place of delight. What is this promise that's put out there, utopia? We're told this path will lead you to there. This path will lead you to there. There is this quest When the internet first came on, we were told, we were told that the internet will take us to utopia. And then capitalism came in. And then we thought, oh, it's not going to do that now, is it? But we were told. But it was this in, it resonated because there was this internal quest that every human has to find Eden. What's going to answer that? What's going to answer that? How is it like I'm in 2019 and there is so much luxury. There are so many toys. There is so much I can actually get. And how is it I can get this brand new phone and like be, oh, this is amazing. This is so good. And two days later, be so dissatisfied with something like that. Why is it like when we first got married, we, we were happy just to have a TV. We just started off with no TV, you know. And now I walk into, I said, we got this TV. Someone gave us a TV. You know, and then like Jono bought us another TV. And, we got another, and like I walk into like Harvey Norman, it's like, my goodness, look how big these TVs are. And if I buy that TV, guess what? It'll take a week and I'll be dissatisfied. Why is it that we have so much, but there is so, dis, so much dissatisfaction? Well, that is telling us something. That's telling us something. Why do nations rage against each other? In this moment, people are honest enough to say we are unsettled with who we are. And we are trying to escape from ourselves. Why is it that even now, it's almost like there's been permission given. 
So we can see that as a great threat, or we can actually see that as a great opportunity and responsibility. So we literally have people who are feeling so uncomfortable and so unsettled that they want to escape who they are. Why is that? And if we actually drill down to those questions, we're going to have so much more compassion. Instead of like putting up walls and throwing stones, like, whoa, wait a minute. I'm going to have so much compassion. They literally, like seriously, there is something where they want to escape. It's one thing to escape your house. It's another thing to want to escape your work, go on a holiday. But to actually want to escape you, what is going to answer that? We've got a great responsibility as the church, haven't we? They're all legitimate questions. They are. I mentioned last week we were talking about three freedoms that we all need. Oh, three things we all need. We need freedoms, we need community, we need meaning. I was mentioning last week, kind of drilled down and said, if you want to find genuine community, you need to be engrafted in. To be engrafted means you have to reduce your freedoms. You know, happens to actually find genuine community. I know that. We came here. Um, seven years ago now, and we like, and, and the problem was I'm supposed to lead the church, but I felt like a complete stranger in the church. You know, it's taken seven years to be engrafted in. It takes time, right? And I'm the leader. You know what I'm saying? I'm the leader. It takes time. It actually means forsaking certain things in order to be in a place where you will be engrafted in. And I cannot engraft you in, only you can engraft you in. And it's exactly the same when it comes to meaning in our life. If you want to be in that place where there is, if you acknowledge, I'm a story person, I'm a meaning person, I need to be engrafted into a narrative. I need to be engrafted into God. So I need to be engrafted and have meaning in my life that does not happen automatically. Any gardener will let you know that if you want to engraft, it takes time, it takes discipline, it takes intention, doesn't it? Which means you actually have to let go of certain freedoms in order to experience true freedom in Christ. There's actually a paradox in freedom. That's why in Mark 8, later on, Jesus is saying, and he says it in Matthew as well, if you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Isn't that an interesting thing to say? That doesn't make sense. Say, if you're going to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. Wait a minute. But if you lose your life, you're going to get it. And then he says, well, what's more important? Your soul. Well, I'm going to say my soul and saving my soul is really important. So the paradox of freedom is that I need to actually forego certain things and actually engraft, and I need to give that over to the Lord in order that I can find true freedom and meaning in life. It's a paradox. It doesn't make sense when you first read it, does it? Well, it should do, because it's throughout the Scripture. So what's more important? He says, follow me. So Levi got up and followed him. Okay, now comes the conflict from verse 15. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other distributable sinners. For there were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. But when the teachers of the religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, 
Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Throughout the Gospels, there seems to be some radical transformation that happens when Jesus sits with people around a table. Not just here. Do you remember Zacchaeus? Short man, was up a tree. Zacchaeus, today I dine with you. Comes out of that interaction. Something radically transformative happened after that encounter. It's actually a messianic picture, which is so powerful. Um, But this table of feasting is a table of transformation. I think that one of the most important things that any Christian can do is to take an account of who sits around with you um, around a table for a meal, for a coffee, for a cuppa. And I understand we all need... We all need those safe, good people who nurture us and put into us. So keep on doing that. But there should be at some point, at some time, I don't even care if it's like in a break at work and it's not necessarily a table or a coffee, it's just a Coke or something. You know, or maybe after work and it's a beer or something. But there should be a place and there should be a time where we actually have people who do not belong to the kingdom who are actually sitting around a table with us because Jesus shows us that transformation happens around the table. It happens around the table. We want to do little programs and little formulas like this, like this equals salvation. And we want to do, but, but really, when the church is released, table ministry is such an important thing that Jesus shows us over and over and over and over again. He is, so, he is just so into this table ministry that he gets a reputation for, for partying and being a glutton. And how do you get that unless you're actually around feasting with people? That's how you get the reputation. So he's doing that. What's striking is that the table of transformation is also the table of conflict. And that's something that um, we need to be aware of. Verse 16, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors? Um, I mentioned in the first service, something that's really important for us to pick up from here is that not once does Jesus call people sinners. The Pharisees do. The Pharisees do. But Jesus doesn't. The Pharisees do, but Jesus didn't. There's a reason why the Pharisees called certain people sinners. And it had to do with purity. So in their mind, in their education, in their upbringing, as a Pharisee, like we want, in their mind, they were saying, the the purer we are, the sooner God comes, okay? That was in their mind. So in their mind, it was like, if I hang out with these people, I'm going to become dirty, So that's why I'm not going to hang out with them. That's why I'm not going to sit with them. That's why I'm not going to stand with them. Okay? I want to remain pure. And it's at this table of transformation that Jesus brings clarity as to what he is doing. He says, I have come to call those. He says this, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call those who... Not, I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Healthy people don't need a doctor. The clarity is this. The meal is happening around Jesus' agenda, not the agenda of the undesirable thugs, prostitutes, tax collectors. It's actually happening around Jesus' agenda. He's actually saying, I'm the doctor, Right? Doctors, by nature, hang out with sick people, don't they? 
How crazy would it be? Like, doctor would be very poor if just healthy people came all the time. I'm just going to hang out with healthy people. No, there is actually an agenda, and it's actually set by the doctor. And the whole point and purpose is actually to make you well. It's the doctor's agenda. It's Jesus' agenda. That's why he says, I have come not to call those who think they are righteous, but those who know they're sinners. Or no, they're not. And you have to picture this. Imagine there's this great table. There's feasting. There's laughing. There's drinking. There's eating. There's music. I mean, far out. Sometimes we may think we know how to party, but have you ever seen like a group of Middle Eastern people party? They are loud. The food is like, oh, amazing. There's smells. There is something huge happening. So there's this huge party happening there. And on this side, you have the Pharisees who are not sitting at the table. Who's missing out? The Pharisees. And why are the Pharisees missing out? Because they've called them sinners. Because in their mind, if I go close to them, I'm going to become dirty and I'm trying to be pure. A bit more clarity, Jesus drills down. Through his table fellowship, Jesus is demonstrating that the kingdom of God belongs to the repentant, not to those who think they're pure. You need to go back to what we were talking about previous weeks. What does repentant mean? What does repent mean? Change your thinking. In light of the kingdom of God being near, being within grasp, change your thinking about everything. And Jesus is saying the kingdom of God belongs to those who are repentant, not to those who think they are pure and they are clean. That's really important. I reckon in my life, there was a point when I knew I was stuffed, right? I was honest enough, you know. So I gave my life to the Lord, and he gave me his righteousness, which is great, fantastic. So I've been walking in the righteousness of God, relationship with God, Holy Spirit, and all that, you know, for such a long time that I really don't know anything else, you know. But I, at times, I forget, and I look over my shoulder at certain groups, at certain people, certain tweets. Oh my gosh, Twitter is just insane. Certain tweets. And I think, man, they are filthy. They are dirty. And, and unknowing to me, I have actually become a Pharisee. And I'm saying, I don't want to dialogue. I don't want to interact. I don't want to sit with them because I'm trying to keep myself clean and they are dirty. All of us are like that. All of us are like that. Yet Jesus shows us at this table of transformation, it is not the pure that get in, it's the repentant. But that happens to all of us. So on this Pentecost Sunday, the day we remember the birth of the church, this church who is to continue the mission of Jesus, this same church who is taught to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This story is instructional for us. We just cannot let this story slip by. Because after Jesus is articulating who he is from his own lips, he is demonstrating how we are to live as his followers. Just three things and we're going to close. And I've already gone through these, but just to make it clear. Number one, Jesus did not have an us versus them mentality. The Pharisees did, and very often the church does. And more often than what I'd like to admit, I do. And if you're anything like me, I guess you do as well. 
But Jesus never did. Jesus never did. And us versus them mentality has in its root purity. I don't want to get dirty. But the kingdom of God belongs to those who repent, not to those who try to stay clean. Second thing, when we sit with unchurched people or those who aren't part of the kingdom, it's on Jesus' terms. It's not on their terms. You know, I can't tell you the amount of people over the years. I mean, I've been a pastor over 20 years now. You know, I know I look young. Yes, anyway. I can't tell you the amount of people. So, oh, you know what? Like, we'll go there and, like, we'll change them for Jesus. And they go with the intention of changing for Jesus. And they didn't change anyone for Jesus. They changed them for the world. Yeah, I can just go and do this, you know. I'll go, come on, just be honest. Um, Whenever we go and sit, eat, drink, it's always on Jesus' terms, not on their terms. I've got... um, great opportunity i get to do this all the time obviously but i've got some great friends and we've been friends the earliest two of them have been friends since year four you know and um we meet all the time um there are certain things they do and i just do not go um i had a good out last night i had to do um a wedding but they had a poker night with some other stuff it's like hey don't have to bother not going to there but whenever we interact and when we do things it's always on jesus terms And when it's on Jesus' terms, there's always questions. There's always questions. I was at the 40th, my mate comes up to me and says, Dave, have you ever experienced this? Dave, Dave, this was his 40th birthday. He says, Dave, have you ever experienced this? The imposter syndrome. I said, Dodge, yeah, man. I said, how do you do it? I mean, like, like, you're you're supposed to be responsible for, like, helping and leading, like, hundreds of people. And, like, what a great question to ask imposter syndrome everyone has imposter syndrome just makes you human but you see when you have interactions on the Lord's terms people are intrigued I've got to be honest there's some other people who don't know me as well and they just look at my life they hear what comes out of my mouth and they're more intrigued than anything else they think like this guy's a bit crazy in fact there's a large part of this church who thinks I'm a bit crazy and I reckon there's an underlying question that, that a lot of people do have. What if we actually pull it off? <laughs> We've been talking about this stuff. What if we actually pull it off and this region is changed for the Lord? I actually want to be part of that. All leaders would be crazy. Especially Christian leaders. Because we serve a big God. And he said, nothing's impossible. So we go with that. Third thing. The table of transformation will be seen. That very same table will be seen as a table of controversy and conflict by others. What are you going to do then? That same table of transformation where you decided to sit with someone to sit with the group on Jesus' terms. There'll be some other people, possibly, slash, probably, those who say they follow Jesus, and they will point their finger and there'll be controversy and there'll be conflict. Just recognize that happens. It happened to Jesus. And if we are following Jesus, we are following him straight to this table of transformation. 
And at the same table of transformation, you better believe it, there'll be conflict and there'll be controversy. All of that to say, to encourage us as the church of Jesus Christ for a moment. Let us really forget about the name of this church. New Spring Church means, I was going to say something else, means stuff all in a lot of eternity. It's just a board. You guys do not belong to New Spring Church. You are part of the church of Jesus Christ. So in light of that, Holy Spirit, challenge us today to sit at the table of transformation with people who are not yet part of your kingdom with those who Ted Turner will call losers the Pharisees will call sinners yet Jesus never calls them a name not once you read it not once Holy Spirit make us that kind of church for your glory in this region in Jesus name we pray we're going to pray for you thank you Lord Father we do